Hello and welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast episode two. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Liz Murphy and I'm joined with my friend Mim Fox. Hello. Hello Mim. Back again. I know. Where we're comfortable now Liz. I think so. Who would have thought that having a big black microphone the size of a head sitting in front of you <laughs> would be such a comfortable position to be in? But it is. It absolutely is. It's obviously the conversation that puts us in our comfort zone. And I don't even notice it after a while. It feels like we're just having a, a cuppa. It's exactly right. <laughs> I wanted to thank everyone who took the time to listen to our first episode and we've been getting some amazing feedback. Yeah, we have. Incredible. So we thought at first it might be my mum and dad. Yeah. Then your mum and dad and sister. Yes. But it's been a little bit beyond our family. <laughs> uh, there have been social work colleagues, frolics, friends, social work students, non-social workers. Yeah, amazing. Who have listened and have taken the time to send emails, give verbal feedback. I had a great comment the other day from one of our students who said, so good to hear real stories. I loved it. We need more of this, less of the textbooks. So Yeah, I'm not sure what about the feedback then from the university to the universities, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are at episode two, Mim. We are. And I'm thinking, Liz, it might be time to talk about an idea that you and I have been bashing around for a number of years now. This is the concept of the social work tribe. Oh, yeah. So you start work in a new organisation. A hospital would be a good example. And the first thing is you're going to need to show your right to be there. So you need to show your verification papers, your vaccinations, in the case of a hospital. Mm. Uh, But I'm thinking this will happen in different organisational contexts, Liz. Sure. Any sort of big organisation. And then you get there and you're issued with an ID card, which would be the equivalent of maybe your residence papers. You start working and you need to learn the language. You need to get to know the anachronyms, Mm. the weird shorthand that people use. Yeah. And then, um, and then you need to start actually figuring out the more subtle differences of being in this new environment. So what's the culture shift? How do you get from place to place and without getting lost? How do you figure out what the power dynamics are in this new environment? It can be really disconcerting. I think so too. And I think it's been a really useful metaphor for our students. So to use the example of you're coming into a foreign land, what would you do if you had dropped in the middle of Bangkok? Yes. Because it's going to feel very similar. And so I think probably we'll be able to comment on the different social work tribes too. So even though, say for instance, your point about hospital, Hospital is like a huge tribe. Social work is a sub-tribe within it. But even within our social work tribe, there are little social work sub-tribes too that you might actually see people who uh, work in a particular area that are a certain certain tribe unto themselves. Maybe your drug and alcohol social workers versus your um, adrenaline, ED, ICU social workers. So there are little sub-tribes within the social work tribe as well. 
and like you say they've got we've got our rich culture our language our rites of passage yes and I think it'd be one of those ideas that over the course of getting to meet tribal members will probably tease out a little more. But we just wanted to sow that seed with our listeners so that they, were, you know, kind of came on board this whole metaphor with us. I think the other thing that we've talked about over time is that the tribe actually can also be a source of comfort mm. and support. Social work sometimes can be a lonely workspace. Um Sometimes you can be the only social worker on a team uh, and it can actually be quite tricky to navigate your role and the work that you're doing in that multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary space. Mm. So actually knowing who your tribe is and being able to hook into them for debriefing, for professional development, for personal support is so important to keep you going in this profession. Great point, Mim. I think you're absolutely right. And it is good to see the strengths of being part of this particular tribe. Yes. Hmm. And one of the reasons I think why we started this podcast was because we both really value the social work tribe and we wanted to make sure that the stories that we love listening to and hearing from our social workers in our tribe actually get out there so that the tribe becomes more than just the people who are physically in our space actually gets to reach across the country around the world that the social work community continues to grow in that way i've got the image of the fire sitting around the fire sharing tribal stories happening now and that's exactly what this podcast is Imagine the fire, listeners, that we're all (laughs) sitting around right now as we move in to our next social work story. This story that we're going to play for you now is um, an interview that was done with a young social worker who is in the first few years of her uh, career and really speaks to some of those ideas about finding your voice as a social worker, finding where you sit Uh, and needing to advocate for your role, your identity, and the work that you're doing. Mm. I think what we have is a rite of passage story, getting back to the tribal metaphor. Yes. And I think we're going to listen to it in two parts. We're going to listen to the first half where she describes how she found her voice as a social worker with this very challenging uh, social work story. And then in the second half, we'll pick it up at a point that really highlights the sensitive way in which she worked with this particular young man with his communication challenges and how she persevered and got to know him in a very deep and meaningful way. What comes to mind is a case that I had it was sort of an ongoing case for about two years that I had. He was a 30-year-old man with severe autism uh, to the point where he wasn't able to really verbally communicate. He was nonverbal and he lived with his mum 
who was his full-time carer, uh, and his younger siblings, and his dad, who wasn't involved with him at all. Um, This man had end-stage kidney disease. So he, probably from when I met him, he was told he had about six months to live. Um, He couldn't he couldn't have dialysis because he gets so agitated and quite aggressive and quite angry when he has needles or when um, he's in a hospital. So he, yeah, he he couldn't have dialysis. Um, so his mum decided that as his as his guardian, as his carer, that he would be placed on a palliative pathway. And so uh, over the two years that I knew him, he would. He would present to hospital every couple of weeks or so. Um, And every time the doctors would say, this is it. This is the end for him. This is the end. He's got maybe two months to live or two weeks to live, but he would just bounce back. And um, every time he came in, he would just cause such a fuss on the ward. He was just angry and agitated and aggressive and he couldn't speak. Um, so that obviously was very frustrating for him and he would take it out on the staff and he would take it out on the social worker and, um, he would take it out on his mom and then his mom would say that she was going to commit suicide because she was so distressed and the care of stress was so great on her. And over the two years, because he kept coming in, he was labeled as what was a frequent flyer, which annoyed the hell out of me, um, that label. And then it got to the point where he became so unwell that his mum couldn't care for him anymore. So he came into hospital and he stayed in hospital and the doctors then said, he can't stay in hospital anymore. You need to get him into a nursing home. And I think that was just one of the most ethically challenging cases for me because the doctors were saying, place this 30 year old in a nursing home with a bunch of you know 80 90 year olds and mm. I just thought that and that was going to be his last you know couple of months or that was going to be the rest of his life and I don't think I had a sense yet of what my social work role was in everything that I was doing I think I was only really really new to the role and I was still finding my feet but this case helped me to establish my role and be the advocate for him. And so I advocated, I advocated very strongly. I got, um, arranged, you know, family conferences and multidisciplinary meetings to talk about all the issues, to understand first his home environment, um, to understand mum's concerns, to try to get to know him as much as possible, even when he was nonverbal. Um, so to try to spend time with him, even though he was aggressive and hated me and didn't want anything to do with me, but to just persevere in that and try to understand him. And I, yeah, I advocated that a nursing home is not a place for a 30 year old. Um, if anything, it would be the palliative care hospital. But unfortunately, with this particular case, every kind of systemic barrier was in the way. Um, his nursing needs were too great for him to be in a nursing home anyway so a lot of them rejected him plus he was 30 
but the palliative care hospital wouldn't take him because he was too aggressive and he wasn't sick enough. So even though he was dying, he was on an end-of-life pathway and he couldn't be cared for at home, they said, no way, we can't take him because he'll disrupt the other people that are dying, trying to die in peace, which was really challenging. So the more we got to know him, the more the staff came to love him and he established relationships with the ward clerks and the nurses to the point he was non-verbal two years prior and in the last sort of few months he came to be able to communicate Uh, he would say my name he would yell my name whenever I you know whenever he wanted something whenever he needed something he would yell it and um but he knew my name. Oh, wow. What a story. I've got the image here of this wonderful young social worker being painted into a corner yeah. by her medical colleagues basically saying it's too hard we've we've had it now we've tried for years working with this young guy we can't do it anymore over to you now find him a nursing home bed I've just got this image of her just rising up and going I there is just no way you could hear it in a voice couldn't you yeah you absolutely could she actually said i was looking at i think up until this point i was still wondering about myself in the role of social work and it was at that point where she found her voice didn't she where she said i there was no way i was actually going to place this 30 year old in a nursing home i had to advocate for him because there was no way that that was going to happen. It's like she found herself as the social worker in that moment, isn't mm. it? And I I think that, I mean, do you remember, Liz, the moment or the job where that first happened for you? I think I'm still trying to find it. No, no. <laughs> do you? Well, I, I don't remember the moment, but I do remember the job where it stopped being about am I liking this job or not, and it started being about feeling comfortable in the purpose something bigger than me for me it was in a community palliative care job where it was me as the sole social worker working with 50 community nurses and it was a really difficult environment because the nurses really owned that space and that work so I had to constantly forge what it was I was doing why I should be involved in the cases and what social work had to offer in that setting. And as I kept doing the work, I found that my confidence in who I was as a social worker just kept growing and growing. And I really remember it very clearly for that really, that big advocacy role about our profession. So again, it was the advocacy. Absolutely. Mm. I think advocacy is a major part of finding who you are as a social worker. And it can be lonely work sometimes. Oh. Like you describe, and as this social worker described, it was her going toe-to-toe with the rest of the team. That's it. And that's hard stuff, isn't it? Especially when you're young. Especially mm. when 
you've gone straight from uni- straight from school to university you've come out working with really difficult situations and you're still in your early 20s potentially and actually you're needing to stand up for your entire profession mm. that's pretty pretty it's a big ask but boy you want this social worker in your corner don't you and i the other thing i loved about her story was the perseverance that she um, gave to this particular client and his mum, she persevered and there were a lot of challenges. She fought to keep him out of the nursing home. And the other thing that I thought was just so wonderful was she fought to get to know him. Yeah. So the way in which that relationship was transformed because of her trans, uh, sorry, her perseverance they got to a point where he felt like he could communicate what he was needing from her. And I think at one stage, I don't think I'm imagining this, she said the staff grew to love him. Yes. The staff grew to love him. Now that's great when they've gone from wanting to shift him off to a nursing home to a point where they grew to love him and I don't know whether we captured this bit in this interview but he, they got to a point where he was able to come in regularly and stay overnight to give his mum a break. Now that's unheard of in hospitals but this social worker was able to push so hard that she got a flexible approach to this young man's care. Let's talk about this concept frequent flyer. Um, and I loved how the social worker said she didn't like that phrase. I'm conscious that um, we have some international listeners, hopefully, and that we should maybe explain what that is in the Australian context. So frequent flyers is a term that's used with um, collecting points or mileage through airlines uh, when you fly regularly. And in the hospitals here, the phrase frequent flyer is often used as a derogatory term for repeat admissions people who find themselves coming back in and in to the hospital. Yes. So it really interested me when she straight up said, I don't like that term. Yeah, I think, and, and as she should, I think it's, um, as you say, it's a derogatory term and it's often used as a way of finding fault in the patient when often it is, it is the system that's actually letting down that particular person. Um, and it's commonly used in emergency. Yes. So someone's called a frequent flyer. It's not because they've earned mileage on their flights. It's certainly not at all. I think half those people would not be in a position to be able to afford a flight to Melbourne. Um, but it are often people that have complex needs um, that require a whole lot more than what an emergency department, for instance, is able to provide for them at that time of need. Yeah. So I'm glad that that social worker actually said, I don't like using this. Yeah, and I think it actually brings us back to the base value for social work about who is your client in this situation. And when you're in a organisational context where the um, culture can often be... a anti the client and there are so many organizational contexts like that where actually the people that we're supposedly there to help the culture actually is against them Mm. Uh, it's so important I think for social workers to come back to that core value of who is our client 
who are we working for and with and therefore what's our purpose here Mim this next section is a really poignant part of the story what happens next is the young man stops sleeping and it's a mystery to everyone what's going on for him and our social worker is going to tell us about what she does in that space how she actually connects with him in a way that she finds out what's going on for him and I don't want to give too much away because I think she tells the story beautifully but it's another example of the perseverance that she gave to him in wanting to get to know his story and at one stage I think she talks about that a lot of the team's understanding of his care needs were based on what the mother was telling them but not much about what he was telling them. So let's listen to how she goes about doing that and then we'll come back and have a bit more of a chat. And then there was, a, there was one point where he came in because he wasn't sleeping and he wasn't sleeping at all and his mum was just at at a wit's end because because he, he can't sleep he wasn't sleeping he just he was just he was fighting it you could see so he'd walk around the ward and he was fighting his sleep although he was so tired but he just wouldn't he refused and no one knew why and then I was able to I don't exactly know how we got there, but we went to my office and we just sat in my office and he was really calm at this point. He was really calm and he was, cause he knew me now at this point and we got to know each other. And I was just able to ask him, you know, what, what do you understand of what's going on? Because the doctors, they'd had numerous meetings with mum and with him in the room, but I think everyone just thought that he couldn't understand what was happening to him. So they would just talk to mum and make all these decisions on his behalf and just think, well, he doesn't understand he has autism. But anyway, this one day we were just sitting in my office and I just decided to just try to talk to him. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen from it, but I just decided to talk to him and say, you know, what's what's your understanding of what's going on for you? And he was able to tell me that he wasn't sleeping because he had heard one of the doctors say that when you die of end-stage kidney disease, you, you fall into a sleep. And it's a very peaceful death, but you fall into a sleep and, and you don't wake up and it's, and it's very peaceful, but it begins with sleep. And that's, that's what he heard and that's what he understood. And he understands that he's dying. He understands what kidney disease is. And he understood that if he fell asleep, he might not wake up. Um, and then I think from there we were able to talk with the doctors and the nurses and the palliative care nurses to reassure him and talk with him further because he does understand. And I think that just... Yeah, for me, that will just be a case that I, I won't forget. I won't forget him. I won't forget his mum uh, and his really unique situation. 
but I think that will just stay with me because yeah it's just really lovely to be able to build up a ongoing relationship with someone even though you know they were initially so aggressive and so angry and so difficult to communicate with to be able to have such a wonderful relationship with So isn't that amazing how this social worker gave him space and this young man found his voice? Incredible. This was someone that they said was non-verbal. I'm pretty sure she described him as being non-verbal. That's right. That's right. And yet she was able to sit with him and ask him what his understanding was to the point where she found out he was frightened of sleep because he equated that with death. And based, understandably, on the information that he'd overheard, the doctor's talking to his mother about. That's right. And had they realised that he would understand or could understand, they probably wouldn't have had that conversation with him. No way. Or done it in a way that he would have understood it, which ended up being what they did anyway. They yes. were then She was able to then encourage the medical team to reassure him about the end stage of his life and what that might look like wasn't just going to happen one magical night because he went to sleep. Yes, that's right. That's right. She, Yeah, she was able to bring a sense of uh, reality and understanding to calm his fears, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah, and the way she actually remained a consistent force in his world in the, in that time, I think that's so important in how she actually... When we talk about building rapport, we sometimes think that that can happen very quickly. And actually, I think in a situation like this, the building rapport happened over a lengthy period of time mm. to the extent where he was able to trust her mm. to that level. And, you know, the other thing I loved about her work was she actually asked a question that we ask a lot in health. What is your understanding what's going on for you at the moment now this social worker asked a young man who at that stage hadn't been able to articulate what he was thinking yeah. but she asked it anyway yes i love that yeah i do too she actually stepped into the space yeah yeah really important really important demonstration of how to do that actually you know, a lot of social work students often um, shy away from the field of disability or chronic health. Uh, they feel that maybe it's not as exciting as other areas, or maybe it doesn't have the emotional depth or range that the interpersonal work in other areas might give them. But I actually think a story like this really demonstrates how incredible the communication can be if you actually do step into the space with someone, if you have the bravery within your practice to actually take a risk with your communication and go there with someone. Mm. So, Mim, we might finish up now, um, but what a beautiful episode of two parallel stories where both the client and the social worker found their voice. Yeah, really so lovely. And actually... Um, really makes you think about uh, how we're all connected mm. as well in different ways, um, which comes back to the notion of a tribe as oh, well. Yeah. Full circle. Full circle, Mim. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you to you, Liz. 
Thanks, Mim. And thank you to Ben Joseph, our producer on the podcast, Justin Stetch, who is our assistant producer. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Or hearing you next time, I should say. I think say. it is hearing. Yeah. I'm seeing you, though. You're seeing me. But so pleased to be seeing you again, Liz. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.